We're going to be in Psalm 119, verses 137 through 144. We're almost done with Psalm 119. Like, we're approaching uh, next month, um, one of the weeks that Vernon's out. My dad is actually going to come and preach. And so he's going to preach one of the sections of Psalm 119. And he was like, oh, wow, you guys are almost done. And I was like, yeah, I can't believe it. When Vernon uh, committed us to this at the start of the year and I went with him, it did take as long as we thought it would. So here we are. We're getting towards the end. Um, we are in Tzadeh, um, is the Hebrew word or letter, if you want to know that. It doesn't matter if you don't remember that. It doesn't change anything. That's just the letter that every line starts with in Hebrew. Um, that's the art that the psalmist was making. Um, but let's read the passage in... The focus this morning is the righteousness of God and why the righteousness of God comforts us if we, if we meditate on it, why it will give us lasting joy, why it will equip us to obey God when we don't feel like obeying God. Um, if we understand how righteous He is, um, and this is the word, if you remember a few weeks back when we looked at the passage um, in Ayan, this is... Uh, that section, I said the key word was servant. That really, if you did not think about the word servant, that whole passage just didn't have the same meaning. We were supposed to approach the word of God as servants, ready to listen, ready to obey. I think in this section, the word righteous is very similar. The psalmist, everything he's going to talk about, for him, these things are only true if you understand that God is way more righteous than we are. Um, actually, even to compare is, is kind of missing the boat there. Um, but let's read our passage, Psalm 119, 137 through 144. And if you want to, you can highlight, if you mark in your Bibles, you might mark the word righteous or right um, as it comes up so you can kind of see how, how regularly this word is going to appear in our passage. And there's also synonyms to it that you'll notice too. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever. And your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. So you can see that word righteous, righteousness, right, it shows up quite a few times in this passage. Um, when you're studying, especially when you're studying Psalm 119, what I'm noticing is a lot of times in each of these sections, there is some kind of key word that the psalmist is kind of like looking at the character and nature of God and his word and thinking, oh, this is, this is one lens for thinking about that. And I think that's what he's doing here. He is saying, God, you are righteous, and that has implications for how I think about the Bible, how I think about your law, how I think about your commands, how I interact in really difficult circumstances. I think that's what's happening in this section. Um, 
And if you remove the word righteous or right or righteousness, the passage would honestly just kind of lose the meaning because it's such an essential piece. So when you are studying any passage, but especially um, Psalm 119, I think you'd be pretty, pretty wise to, to think, is there a word that if I removed this word, the passage would lose meaning? Um, and then if there is a word like that, really hone in. What is meant by this word? Uh, maybe do a word study on it, but that's, that's just kind of Bible study um, 101. Um, but I think if we get this, if we meditate on righteousness, the righteousness of God, that there is going to be some things that flow out for us that we need. Um, so what I'm going to have you do, um, if you are taking notes on your phone, do it that way. If you are not taking notes, pull out a sheet of paper. If you are taking notes, you're already ahead of the game. Um, write down something that God has done that proves to you that he is righteous. It can be something he has done personally for you, or it could be something you see in Scripture that you are like, wow, if I was going to try to prove to somebody that God is righteous, this would be a thing that I would bring up. And we're going to come back to that at the end, um, and we're going to think about that at the end. Um, but let's pray. Triune God, we hope to see you this morning and why we need to meditate on your righteousness. God, we want to have, I, I want us who are here to be moved in the way that the psalmist is moved by your righteousness. I want to be moved like this. I want to have confidence in your character and the way that that relates to your commands and heartbreak over people who are rejecting you. I want, I want hope when my circumstances are difficult. I want, I want confidence that is rooted in your goodness when I crave sin and I need something to help me fight it. Um, Lord, I think all of these things are in this passage. So help us see them. If they are here, help us to be so convinced by your goodness this morning. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you look at this passage, um, you definitely get the sense that the psalmist is absolutely convinced that God is good. Like, no question in his mind that God is... And good... I mean, it's a word we just throw around. We don't throw around the word righteous, so in some ways it's even better. We get the sense that the psalmist thinks about God and he just thinks there is nothing imperfect in you. That your character is absolutely righteous. There's not... And there's not a human analogy for this because we're all fallen. Um, we, we do, like Clyde, you preached, we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us and credited to us, but that's still a righteousness that's being worked out in sanctification. So even like the most godly Christian you know, you can't say these things about 
their actual actions. And, and so we see our fallenness, but God is not like that. If you're taking notes, the, the first thing I would point out in this passage is He is righteous, and so His words to us are righteous. Look at verses 137 and 138. Um, I think this just nails that point. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Now, remember, in Hebrew, it's not uncommon for, especially in poetry, for one line to just be a mirror image of the other line. I think that's what's happening here. Righteous are you, and then another way to say that is, right are your rules. Like, you are righteous, and your rules, they follow. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. This is just logical. Like, follow the very basic logic here. Like, it is beautiful the way it's laid out, but it's also just very simple. God, you are righteous, and so you say things that are righteous. You command things that are righteous. You command things that are faithful. Everything that you have appointed, it is in faithfulness that you appoint it. There is no ulterior motives with God. To give you a really silly contrast, um, I'm going to give you a really silly contrast to God's righteousness and His decrees and requests compared to me and my um, ulterior motives um, unrighteousness by comparison for sure to his righteousness. Um, Andrea and I, we disagree on how we should sleep in bed. I like to swap sides of the bed. I'm a monster. I recognize, I see Martha like, that is the craziest thing that I've ever heard. I like to, I like to change it up. I mean, I've got my reasons, but the main one is you just make these dents in the bed and then you're like, Man, if we just swap this up, anyways, that's a different story. But I love to change it up. Um, and she feels very strongly that that is not what we should do. That how in the world could you rest if you don't know where you're going to sleep? And I get that. That's the way 99% of people are. I'm in this really monstrous, horrible group of people that wants to change it up. Um, and so sometimes I find myself laying in bed thinking, man, I would really like to sleep on the other side of the bed. Not like rotate, like laying opposite, but just like switch sides. And I find myself in those moments thinking, it doesn't matter which side of the bed I'm on, I'm always thinking in that moment, if somebody broke into our house, what if they came in our room? They would get to Andrea first. And I can't let that happen. I have to protect my wife. So then I'm like, hey, babe, we need to swap sides. Because if somebody broke in, just think about it. They would get to you first. And what kind of husband would I be if I let that happen? Now, I know that that is truly not my motivation because I have also been on the other side of the bed and said, they could climb in through the window and, and get you. So we need to swap. And so... And my wife knows that I have these ulterior motives that I don't even always recognize, but I totally do. And so she looks at me and says, no. And that's kind of the end of it because actually she tells me, stop bringing up people breaking in our house. Well, how am I going to sleep if you're making me think about people breaking into the house? Everything is fair on her. She is right and I am wrong here. I'm acknowledging the brokenness of my own. Um, anyways, I'm not arguing that I'm correct 
except that we are denting our bed, and that is too bad. But I have ulterior motives. God is not like that. Well, actually, you can't flip our mattress. It's really sad. It doesn't flip, I know. Yeah, you, our mattress only, it doesn't matter. This is totally off track, not useful. The only point here is all of us are like that. I like to think that I don't have ulterior motives, that I'm not manipulative, that I'm not trying to, to warp things to work a certain way. But the truth is, if you know me, there are times that I do that. Because everybody does that to some degree. Like we have these things that we focus on because we have priorities that are just not consistent all the time. That is not what God is like. Everything that God has asked of His people, it is always consistent with His character. It is always consistent with His righteousness. And this is really helpful for us. Because who hasn't had a moment in their life where they thought, God, that's kind of petty that you'd make a big deal out of that. You might not say it, but you're like, and, and I've talked to people who are struggling with sin, and they usually say things like, yes, I know God said this, but this situation is so hard for these reasons. And the truth of the matter is, according to the psalmist, God didn't lay out these laws just to get you. He didn't, he didn't lay out these laws to say, man, I'm just going to make this, this spiritual, like walking with me really, really difficult. I want people who are really going to suffer. Like, that's not his rationale. It is based on who he is. It is based on his righteousness. It's based on, verse 138, his faithfulness. So every single thing that he asks of us is actually a loving gift to us. Now you might, and actually I wrestled with this a little bit as I was preparing because I thought, well, is that really true, psalmist? Because we don't follow all 613 laws that God laid out in the Old Testament. Were those laws laid out in righteousness? And the answer is yes. The answer is absolutely yes. But then you would reasonably say, well, then why are we eating shellfish, Luke? Why are we eating pork? If God laid out those laws in righteousness, then why don't we follow them? And, and I totally empathize with that, that rationale because I kind of had to go back and forth. But what we realize when we step back is God was doing something at that point in time with the people of Israel in terms of making them a unique nation and boundarying them off from all of these other nations that were worshiping false gods. And so even when He made these laws that apparently on the outside look really arbitrary and even to us today don't apply to us. Those things were given in righteousness. They were given in faithfulness to do something unique and special for the people of Israel. And the most difficult one that you might raise is, well, what about the Garden of Eden? Don't eat the fruit. What's the big deal about this fruit? Now, First, I would say the Bible doesn't explicitly give us all of these answers. But what I think we can start to piece together 
is God has given this man and this woman in the garden the opportunity to trust him or reject him and see the implications of rejecting his law. And so even in that, this, this amoral thing, don't eat a piece of fruit, I don't think that fruit really had inside of it anything really dangerous except that God said don't. I don't think when they bit into that that God had put all of sinfulness in a piece of fruit. I think it's much bigger than that. He was teaching them, look, even when you don't understand, you've got to trust me and walk with me. And then he taught us, this is what happens when you reject me and when you don't follow me. And so even this piece of fruit in the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden, this amoral thing, it was laid down in righteousness, out of his character. This is really helpful for us. If we would really embrace it, it will help us a whole lot when it comes to temptation towards sin. Because he is not sitting in heaven going, hmm, I just want to get Diana. I'm just going to give her the hardest law. And I don't actually love Diana. I don't care for her. I just want to make things difficult for her. That's sometimes the way people think about God. Like he's just arbitrarily saying, no, you can't have that and you can't have that. And it's just because I said so. No, he has done all of these things consistently with his, within the context of his character. He doesn't lay down laws that are not for our good. And so he is trying to bring us into something wonderful, not keep us from something great. In his faithfulness, he's appointed these testimonies. Which the psalmist gets that. Which is why then he looks out at the world and he sees people not walking with the Lord. And what does it do to him? You can answer. How does he feel about that? Yeah, he, it says, my zeal consumes me. This is the very religious way of saying, I am really, really mad about this. There's a level that it is right to look out in the world and say, man, they are just rejecting God's law, and that makes me so angry. And it should. Like, it should make us angry. It should break our hearts. We should look out and go, they have access to the commands of the person who loves them more than anyone else, and they're rejecting those commands to their eternal destruction. That makes me really mad at Satan and also want to shake them and ask them, why are you doing this? My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. And this is a big deal because, verse 140, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I have learned to walk with you. I've learned how righteous you are and how right your commands are. And so it makes me angry when people don't understand that because I see what that's doing. And it also, at the same exact moment as he's thinking about it, he can't stay angry. Almost immediately, he goes back to worship. And this is why I would push back on somebody who all they can do is talk about how evil the world is. Because while the psalmist would agree with you, the world out there is bad. And to be frank, the people in here are bad apart from Christ. We need Christ's righteousness too. 
But if all we can do is talk about how bad it is out there, we're not understanding this the way the psalmist is. And I have listened to a lot of preachers that all they can do is talk about how bad the world is. And that's not what the psalmist does. Almost immediately, after expressing, man, this breaks my heart, this makes me angry, your promise is well tried, God, and your servant loves it. He's tested out the commands of God, and he has seen where they led. The joy that they produce. And so what did that do for him? It produced greater love for God's commands. This always happens. I saw it when we did our first outreach night, when I saw people who had never gone really door-to-door suddenly smiling about knocking on people's door and praying for people who right before doing that looked as horrified as I felt. But we got in here and we were like, oh my goodness, we got to be used by the Lord in this really small way, but it was wonderful. And the psalmist is saying, I have tried your commands And man, they have been proven faithful. And so even though our circumstances might look terrible, verse 141, what does he say? I am small and despised. He doesn't say, I feel like I am small and despised. He says, I actually am small and despised. Now, obviously, this is a poem, so I don't want to push that. Like, I'm not saying this is a a short guy, but he is saying, I am not accepted in this world. I am rejected by many, many people. I have many enemies. And how long does he hang out there? This is, again, I don't think for the believer who truly understands how righteous God is, that we should be spending too much time getting angry at the world out there. We should definitely be spending a lot more time being really, really enraptured in God's goodness. That should captivate us. It should break our hearts that the world out there doesn't understand that. But we shouldn't spend all of our time meditating on that. We should be meditating on His goodness and falling in love with that. Yet I do not forget your precepts. Even though all of these things are happening to me, even though everything feels really, really bad, I get to think about you. I get to think about the way that you have given me exactly how I should live in this. And it becomes a basis for us to live regardless of our circumstances. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your word. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. And then this line, it's just such a strange line. Your righteousness is righteous forever. And your law is true. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Every law that He has commanded flows out of His character. And His character never changes. It never shifts. So you might look at Scripture and say, well, but we don't have all of the exact same commands 
Luke that they had in the Old Testament? And I would say, sure. But his character has never changed, even though the circumstances of the people that he was working with and the ways in which he was working with them, they might have changed. And so the actual do this, don't do this might have changed a little bit. But ultimately, this overarching morality, this overarching righteousness and righteous rules, they've never shifted because he has never shifted. So the outworking of that righteousness might change. And I think it certainly does. You think about the way that the commands of believers in the New Testament differ from the commands of believers in the Old Testament differ. They were under a a national religious entity where God was in charge. He had priests. And now we're in the New Testament. We have churches. And I am not your priest. Jesus is our high priest. And so the way that we interact is different. You don't come to me like Aaron, and say, all right, Luke, I have this goat. Can you sacrifice it so I can be right with God? Like, that's not going to happen because we're in a different era. Jesus has done things that have removed that from, from our experience. But His righteousness hasn't shifted. And now, in the day and age in which we live, where, let's be honest, morality has shifted a lot. I think about my experience as a little kid, the things that I thought everybody just universally understood as right and wrong, they're different now. I don't know, I've probably brought this up before, but in 2008, there was not a major political candidate who was in favor of same-sex marriage. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton both opposed same-sex marriage in 2008. That is hard for kids that I interact with in youth group to even believe because our culture has shifted so much. God has not shifted. His righteousness is a rock bed righteousness forever. This is really, really helpful. Because it is going to be difficult. It is going to be difficult to walk with Jesus if the culture keeps shifting and keep shifting and keep shifting on these different areas. But if we trust in Him and we depend on Him, then we'll have a lot more basis for obedience versus simply, what do people think right now? Our basis for obedience is much better than that. In fact, what we find at the end of this section in verses 143 through 144 is that in actuality, if we embrace and pursue and love His righteousness, there is eternal pleasure in that. Trouble and anguish have found me out. Again, you've got this sense that He's, okay, this is the world I live in. This is the brokenness that I'm experiencing. But, your commandments are my delight. I, I really think we are prone to think that God is primarily withholding things from us. And that the Christian life is primarily taking up your cross and following Him. That part is true. But what's at the end? We get God. We get Jesus. 
That's why Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose or forfeit his soul? Like, we aren't really giving up anything. We're dying to one thing to embrace something way better. That's why Jesus' parable about the treasure in the field. I know I've highlighted this for you so many times, but I want you to get this. We aren't selling everything We aren't selling everything to move into a shack. We are giving up our lives because we're entering into a kingdom with our king. And we get that right now. Even in this broken world, your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Okay, so at the risk of just restating everything that I have already said, which, with fairness, the psalmist kind of does that too, so I don't feel too guilty about that. How righteous is God? Incomparably. There is no, there, there's almost not words for it. How righteous are His words? Exact same level. From the exact same heart, exact same person. When was He righteous? Always. When will he be righteous? It will never end. He will never stop being who he is. He has always been who he is, and he will always be who he is. So he will definitely give us what he has promised us. He will definitely be faithful to us. And so if you are in the midst of a difficult temptation... And you're saying, God, I just want this thing so bad. And your word says this. You have, if you really believe this, a weapon to throw in Satan's face. You can say, Satan, that does look really great to me in my flesh. But my spirit knows how good God is. And so I don't want anything to do with that because God, the God who did whatever it was that you guys wrote down. He's the one who gave that command. Which actually, pull out your card, pull out your phone, scroll up to it if that's where you're at. Look at it. Look at what you wrote down. What did you write? Was it a personal experience? Certainly, I've had personal experiences that the Lord has worked in my life and they proved to me how good He is. Was it something that happened in the story of redemption? Was it the cross? For me, that's the thing that is the most obvious. Like Paul says that the cross proves the grace and the justice of God. It's the righteousness of God displayed. I think my question for you is if you think about the thing that you wrote down, would that God that you wrote down that thing about, would He withhold anything from you? that wasn't something you needed withheld? Our righteous God is giving us commands and decrees that we are required to obey as His people. We are His servants, like the section in Ion says. But at the exact same time, His commands are leading us towards life. They are leading us towards joy. They are leading us towards Himself. 
That's what we are invited into in this passage. And so, we should say, God, give me more understanding. I want to know your commands even more. How many servants would say to their master, please give me more commands? We get to do that because every time he tells us something, he gives us more goodness. Because he only asks what is consistent with himself. Let's pray. God, um, even as I preach these things, I know that there have been so many times that I have grieved Your Spirit, that I have been annoyed by Your Spirit speaking to me because I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And Lord, I know that I am not alone in that. But Lord, help me believe Help me believe that you are as righteous as, as we say you are. And that the commands and decrees that you give are ultimately flowing right out of that. Lord, protect our church. Cause us to be a people that are so enamored with your righteousness. The righteousness that is righteous forever. Help us be a people that's so enamored with that, that that we would walk with you even when it is most difficult for us. We love you, God. And um, we love your words. And we ask that you would give us greater clarity on what you have commanded. Because we know it is for our good and our joy and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.